Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby. We are thankful that you have joined us today. This is the work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We're located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. You can reach us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, That You May Grow Thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. My name is Greg Littmer, and I am one of the elders of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. I'm Jacob Taylor, one of the evangelists. I'm Ross Oldenkamp, also an evangelist. We're going to turn our attention now to one of the questions that was asked of Jesus on that last fateful Tuesday of his life here on earth. And it is a question about the son of David. And it's found in Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46. It's also found in the other synoptic gospels, Mark and Luke. Anyhow, let's go ahead and read that. It says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then how is David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, and so I put your enemies under your feet. Therefore, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to offer him a word in answer. Nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him any more questions. I think it's interesting that as the Pharisees had gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. While their questions had been meant to entrap and ensnare, Jesus' question was meant to teach them, to save them, to help them understand what they were doing by their rejection of him. When Jesus asked, What think you of Christ? Whose son is he? The Pharisees were quite able to answer, or the son of David. And the Old Testament made that abundantly clear. I'm thinking of 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, Isaiah chapter 9, Micah chapter 5. But when Jesus continued on and quoted from Psalm 110 and verse 1, they did not answer. The point of Jesus' question was how did they explain the use of the title Lord by David when he was speaking of his own descendant? How could the Christ be David's son and David's Lord at the same time? Jesus was attempting to help these individuals understand the divine character of the promised Messiah and in so doing help them to understand the divinity of the very one they were planning to destroy. I think his question and his logic completely dumbfounded the Pharisees. Yeah, um, in Genesis 37, verse 10, Joseph tells his father and his brothers about a dream he had, uh, the application of which was, uh, one day y'all are going to bow down to me. And I think that uh, Jacob's response perfectly illustrates uh, the problem that these people uh, were having with what uh, David had said, because he said it says he told it to his father, his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said, "What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down on the, to the earth before you?" Well, that that is not a general practice that the father would bow to the son as though he were greater. And yet, as you said, this is a testimony to the deity 
of Jesus. The only way this can make any sense for David in the flesh, King David, uh, to, to refer to a descendant of his as Lord being greater than him is that he is God. Let's go ahead and look at the denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees that we find in Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 39. You know, it's interesting that the image that is presented of Jesus oftentimes is of a gentle, soft-spoken man who is humble to the point of allowing people to step all over him. And this particular passage shows us righteous indignation on the part of Jesus as he addresses the Pharisees. Uh, you want to read it? Yeah, 1 through 12? 1 through 12. All right. It says, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, whatever they tell you, do and comply with it all. Do not do as they do, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as their finger. And they do all their deeds to be noticed by other people, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. And they love the place of honor at banquets and the seats of honor in the synagogues, and personal greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by the people. Rest for you, do not be called rabbi, for only one is your teacher, and you are all brothers and sisters. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for only one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for only one is your leader, that is Christ. For the greatest of you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Let's take a moment and kind of review quickly to bring us to where we are now. By carefully following the series of events that had taken place, it is apparent that it is still Tuesday of the Lord's last week before the crucifixion. Jesus probably arrived in Bethany on Friday before the Sabbath. On Sunday, he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. On Monday, he cursed the fig tree and cleansed the temple. On Tuesday, we find the discussion about the withered fig tree upon his return to Jerusalem. And we might make the point that we actually have a more complete account of what happened on this day in the life of Jesus than any other, with the possible exception of the day in Galilee when Jesus delivered the sermon on parables, calmed the sea, and healed the gathering demonic. Anyhow, on this final Tuesday, we see the question about our Lord's authority, the question of tribute to Caesar, the question concerning the resurrection, and our Lord's question about the Christ. We also see the parables of the two sons and the wicked husbandman, as well as the wedding garment. We also see the denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees, the incident of the widow's might, and the wonderful sermon about life and death. There is also the private instruction given to his apostles and recorded in Matthew 24 and 25 that we will be getting to. But the Lord's scathing denunciation of the Pharisees and scribes was delivered to the multitude that had in it scribes and Pharisees. I want to take just a moment and read to you R.C. Foster's uh, reason for this sermon. I think he hit the nail right on the head. He said, 
the work of construction and destruction go together. Before the new house can be built, the old one must be torn down. Before the nation can be won to the spiritual ideals of the kingdom of God, the false teachers and worldly motives of the hypocritical leaders of the nation must be uncovered. Facing the national leaders in this crisis and in the hearing of the vast multitude, Jesus challenged his disciples to disown the whole false system which the Pharisees had bound upon the nation. He clearly upheld the Old Testament law as of God, but denounced the Pharisees as a very exact knowledge of the law and to a perfect observance of it. They pretended to extraordinary justice to the poor, friendship for the distressed, and willingness to aid those who were in embarrassed circumstances. They thus induced widows and poor people to commit the management of their property to them as guardians and executors, and then took advantage of them and defrauded them. By their long prayers, they put on the appearance of great sanctity and induced many weak women to give them much under pretenses of devoting it to religious purposes. They sought to make converts to Phariseeism, not simply to the truth. Then they made their converts so fanatical to the precepts of the Pharisees that they turned out to be twice as bad as those who taught them. What a terrible indictment. They made them twofold more the child of hell than themselves. You know, I think that when we read this, uh, we can we can tend towards thinking, well, this, this isn't really nice. This is just not a nice way to talk to people. I could see somebody not very familiar with Scripture thinking, uh, you know, you just don't need to say things like this. But like you said, Greg, that's a great quote from Foster there, that this was needful. You know, Ezekiel talked about uh, the the evil shepherds of Israel and and uh, rebuked them for feeding themselves and not caring for the weak and seeking the lost and healing the sick and all that sort of stuff. And, and it says in verse 10 of Ezekiel 34, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against these shepherds and will require my flock at their hands. And to me, that's that's what Matthew 23 is. It is... It is an explanation of God against the false shepherds of Israel who do not care for the people. Jacob? Yeah, I think um, I think we start to see here to, the, to that point, love isn't something that it's, you're telling someone that, you, that they're doing great all the time and being a yes man all the time. It's certainly good and important to encourage and to look to benefit others and that, that last part's the key to benefit others is sometimes benefiting is is telling people that they are doing a good job and that they can and to encourage them in that way it can also be a benefit to tell them what they are doing wrong what they need to work on um, to do so with love not to you disregard that as you help them but to show them what they're doing is wrong and Jesus is giving them the the teachings that certainly it's in a more stern manner um, but it's it's absolutely truthful and, and out of love. It's not out of hatred towards them. It's Jesus' love towards them. I'm also amazed in uh, verses 3 and specifically verse 4 of their hypocritical nature. 
um, which Jesus will get more into in the uh, in this chapter of how they're tying heavy burdens on people and on their on, on their and lay them on the shoulders of these people, but they aren't even willing to move them with so much as their fingers. Um, we can look at that and certainly see that behavior is just silly. It's sad to, to look at someone and say, "You carry this and um, this heavy burden, and you're not even willing to move it hardly at all." Um, but and throughout the rest of this chapter, see these things and these traits that the Pharisees possess, the scribes and Pharisees possess, and look at them and their character. Do we represent any of these traits? Do we relate to them? Are we hypocrites? Are we blind guides? Are we any of these things as we go throughout this chapter? Um, it's certainly important to see that this was traits that they represented people in Jesus' time, but this isn't something that is, is gone away. It can be still be done today. Jesus has shown us in his ministry that he did not kowtow to traditions of men. And to me, when Jesus is saying, whatever what they're telling you to do, observe and do, I don't think he's saying, look, you have a duty to follow all of their man-made traditions. I think that what he's saying is, don't discard everything that they say just because they are hypocrites. And that's a tendency that we have to to do with people. Oh, you're just a hypocrite. I'm not going to listen. Or someone will speak ill of a church. And they're, they're all just a bunch of hypocrites. I'm not going to do anything. Well, Jesus is saying, no, we still have a duty to God's law. And to the extent that they are saying true and right things, then do those things. Don't discount them just because they are the ones who are saying them. When they take excesses and they go too far, they go beyond scripture, I don't believe Jesus is commanding them to obey the Pharisees. But but don't immediately discount everything that they say, because in some instances, they may be speaking uh, what Moses actually actually taught. Let's go ahead and read the remainder of this account, because some of what is said will give us a clear indication of what has already been said by Jesus at this time. So we'll pick up reading in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 23. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain at a knot and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, then the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like the whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore you are witnesses against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore indeed I send you prophets, wise men and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And I'll go ahead and read the lament of the Lord. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I think it's kind of interesting that these particular individuals so held in respect by the Jewish populace and yet so wrong in so much of the application of the law they made. Yeah, verse 28 says, Outwardly you appear righteous to men, but that section you just read shows us what God sees. God sees everything. I think it's a message that says, I see you. I see you for what you really are. And there are eight pronunciations of woe in that section. I kind of went through them and made a very short summary of them. The first woe, you are an obstacle to the kingdom. The second woe is you take advantage of widows. The third is you pervert the convert. The fourth woe is you are deceitful. The fifth woe is, you major in the minors. The, the sixth and the seventh are alike in that you are outwardly righteous. 
And the final woe is you are puffed up. Uh, in other words, you have an inflated view of your superiority as you uh, as you speak of the previous generations as, as not as enlightened nor righteous as are you. In verses 34 through 36, Jesus was not saying that the Jewish people to whom he was speaking would be held personally responsible for murders that they had not committed. But he was saying that the climax of all such defiance of God was about to be seen in the murder of his son. Theirs had been the divine gift of revelation. Theirs the terrible sin of rejection. All the murders from Abel to Zechariah is akin to saying everything from Genesis to Malachi was about to be culminated in the actions of that generation. Jesus had spoken of the judgment that would come upon that generation, upon the people, most probably the destruction of Jerusalem. Here is his lament over the city and the people he loved. For so long God had sought to secure the repentance of the people. Now Jesus himself had pleaded with them to accept him and receive salvation. They were rejecting him. Punishment would result. You know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm interested here in verse 30 that says that they said, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers. This is, this is something that could be applied throughout Scripture, I think. And that is an, a warning against uh, looking back in judgment on previous generations. I mean, do you ever do this with your with your Bible reading? You read about you read about you can start in the Garden of Eden. What if you were alive in the Garden of Eden? God said you can't eat of this certain tree right here. It's so easy to say. Well, I would have just been content with everything God had provided. I wouldn't have eaten the fruit. Yes, you would have. Yes, I would have. Well, what if you were in the wilderness and uh, God fed you with manna? Well, I wouldn't have complained about the manna. Look, look at how they complained. It's easy to go through all that and kind of see yourself as, uh, as someone superior to those about whom uh, you're reading. But I think this shows us that that tendency is not wise and we can sometimes have a blind spot when we when we try to compare ourselves we need to just embrace the fact that we are subject to the same temptations and they're common and we all have fallen to these things i think to um verse 25 and um 25 to 27 actually when it's talking about how they're the outside appears as, as beautiful and as clean and they take care of the outside of the cup or the the tomb is beautiful um, whitewashed tombs but the inside is uh, for the cup in verse 25 is full of robbery and self-indulgence um, the tombs are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness it's certainly the the picture there of looking nice and having all these different um, uh, certainly when we jump back to chapter 20 or the earlier in chapter 23 when it talks about their phylacteries and the lengthening of those and and the tassels and lengthening of those and how they look so good, so uh, righteous in their appearance and God's people, but inwardly it was full of death and um, robbery, self-indulgence. Are we in the same way like that? We are. We can appear 
as though that we have it all together in terms of we are living that life. You can come to church on all the times that is uh, appointed, but at the end, and you can fool fool men and and thinking that you are living in the right way. But God knows what's truly inside. God knows the heart. God knows if there is righteousness in you and in your motives and knows if there is nothing but but um, death and unrighteousness inside. That's going to have to do it for this particular episode. Once again, we thank you for listening. We really, really, truly appreciate it. Come visit us at our website at www.nkcofc.com. Until next time then, thanks for listening.